And the simple title in most of our Bibles is The Rich Man and Lazarus. Okay? Well, this could be a story of the haves and the have-nots. The wealthy versus the poor. The healthy versus the sick. The shakers and the movers versus the simple and the ordinary. The proud and the arrogant versus the lowly and humble. Earthly acceptance and earthly rejection. A said profession of faith versus a heavenly possession of faith. The faithless versus the faithful. Hell versus heaven. The deceived believer versus the true believer. And on and on we could go. This parable covers a multitude of spiritual truths, but there is one that has stood out to me, and that's the one we're going to look at this morning. Back in 1991, I think this monitor's on, right? Yeah, that's what I'm getting, the feedback. Back in 1991, there was a movie called Defending Your Life. I don't know how many of you have ever seen that movie, but comedian writer Albert Brooks uh, stars in this lighthearted comedy about what it might look like when we die. And we have to prove our worth in order to move on to the next level. After dying in a traffic accident, he is immediately placed in this holding city, awaiting his hearing to defend his life before he can move on. He is met in a type of courtroom with two judges who will make the final decision as well as a prosecuting attorney and a defense attorney who continually boast of using 55% of their brain and making fun of Daniel, who only uses 5 to 7% of his, rightly labeling him as little brain. His newfound friend, played by Meryl Streep, are un- they're able to dine in the best restaurants, eat the best food, and eat as much as they want without gaining weight. Sounds kind of cool. They would never get full. The hotels they stayed at while on trial were luxurious Every amenity at no cost. The city was meticulously maintained and beautifully landscaped. However, Daniel's biggest obstacle was himself. His fears and anxieties would cause him to make what seemed to be wrong choices while on earth. After a nine-day trial, he eventually was found unworthy by the judges and had to return to earth to try again. Julia, his new friend, was granted her promotion to the next level, and when they were separated, it was too much for Daniel to endure. He overcame his fear and anxiety by escaping his transport, bound back to earth, and forcing himself onto her transport, banging on the door, trying to open it. And finally, it was granted, and the door was open, and he went in. He had overcome his fear and anxiety with love. I know it's a funny story and very far from the biblical account that we're going to read this morning. Most people think of heaven as a place that they have created to fit their wildest dreams as well as their distinct misunderstandings of a place called hell. Barna Research states, Belief in the hereafter, like the existence of God, is widely embraced by almost 81% of Americans. Another 9% were uncertain. 10% agree that there's nothing after one dies. 79% agree with the statement, every person has a soul that will live forever, either in God's presence or God's absence. 
79% of the people believe heaven exists, but only 58% believe that there's a place called hell. 14% claim heaven is just symbolic. 18% now accept that people are reincarnated after death. However, and this was kind of mind-boggling, many so-called committed born-again Christians believe that people have multiple options for gaining entry into heaven. They are saying, in essence, personally, I'm trusting Jesus Christ as my means of gaining God's permanent favor in, in, in a place called heaven, but someone else could get to heaven based upon living an exemplary life. Millions of Americans have redefined grace to mean that God is so eager to save people from hell that he will change his nature, he will change his character, and his universal principles for their individual benefit. It's shocking how many people develop their faith according to their feelings or emotions or cultural assumptions rather than biblical truth and principles. One of the interesting findings from the research is that education and income are negatively correlated with belief in heaven and hell. One of, uh, in other words, the more educated a person is, the more income they have, the less likely they are to believe that heaven or hell even exists. While most high-income households and college graduates maintain a belief in heaven and hell, the finding reinforces the popular notion, and indeed, Jesus is teaching that people of economic means and those with considerable education struggle to embrace the biblical teachings in such matters. I've titled this morning's message, No Second Chances. It's been debated whether or not that this is a parable or a true depiction of the reality of the separation between heaven and hell. The message is the same there is a place called heaven, and there is a place called hell. And at the end of this life, there will be no second chances. So let's turn to Luke chapter 16, and let's just read the account. <clears throat> Starting in verse 19. There was a certain man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and he was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to there cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. 
I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through the one who raises from the dead. Lord, I come before you this morning, and I just ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts to your word, not mine. But Father, take these words that you've given to us to show the difference between this life and the next. That you have given us opportunities. And Father, (laughs) there will be no second chances. Help us, Father, as we navigate through this passage, that you would give us the understanding through your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. What is a parable? First, we must define what it is. A parable is literally something cast alongside something else. The parables of Jesus were stories that were cast alongside a truth in order to illustrate and illuminate that truth. His parables were teaching aids and can be thought of extended allergies or inspired comparisons. A common description of a parable is that it is an earthly story with a spiritual significance. For a time in his ministry, Jesus relied heavily on parables. He told many of them, in fact, in Mark 4.34, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. I didn't know this, but there are about 35 parables recorded in the three Gospels. John has no no parables in it. There is a debate whether or not this section of Scripture is a real story or is a parable. But most commentators consider this to be a parable, even though it is not called as such by Jesus himself. The major argument for this not being a parable is that Jesus mentions the poor man's specific name, Lazarus. But as we will see, even his name fits well with the story being a parable. And so the following comments will be given as if it were. In the King James Version, this section says a certain rich man, which is also a characteristic way that Jesus begins other parables. We are reminded that a parable usually has one memorable, clear, expressed spiritual truth, which is exactly what Jesus does in this parable. The truth is that the rich man was surprised to end up in a place he never expected to be in spite of all his worldly possessions, his power, his prestige, and his religious piety. To establish the context... It'll help us understand the truth of this parable. We need to be reminded of the theology of the Pharisees, which included their belief in life after death, divine judgment, a place called heaven, and a place called hell. And because of their external devotion and piety and their works based on righteousness, no good Pharisee would have ever expected there was even the slightest chance they would end up in hell. 
And so while they would have clearly identified with the rich man in this story, you can only imagine the shock when Jesus explained that this certain rich man did not end up well. One of the major points of Jesus' parable is that many, many who think they are on the road to heaven will tragically find themselves in a real place of torment when they die. And also while some readers and hearers at that time might react negatively to Jesus' word in this parable, the truth is that this account reflects Jesus' great compassion and mercy. Why? Because it's Jesus is clearly warning people who hold to a deceptive and dangerous understanding that they will go to heaven when they die based solely on their good life, good deeds, good intentions, and even sincere hearts. In complete contrast, Jesus is saying that when they die, they will be shocked because they will find themselves in a place of unimaginable pain. The rich man no more expected to find himself in eternal torment than the Pharisees who were lovers of money, power, and reputation. They were among those who gained the world but lost their souls. For what is it to profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits his soul? We are reminded that the context here follows Jesus' telling of other parables in the presence of the Pharisees. Luke 8.10 says, He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has, seen, has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that those seeing they may not see, and though hearing they may not understand. Why would Jesus tell stories to prevent people from understanding, you may ask? Every person leaning in to listen to Jesus with a desire to follow him, and there were others who had their own agendas. The Pharisees kept a watchful eye on Jesus to catch him in something he might say that would be in their minds a statement of blasphemy. They were jealous of the attention he was getting, the crowds he was attracting. They were waiting to charge him with some kind of heresy. Imagine this scenario. This is my creative way of putting this in a story form. There's a young intern. He wants to be a Pharisee. And he's been sent by his professors to go and spy on Jesus. This is part of his initiation. So with pencil in hand and spiral notebook under his arm, he goes and he starts to seek out where Jesus is. Well, he's been listening to Jesus for quite a while. He's heard many of the parables. And now it's time to go back and report. And this is the little dialogue that takes place. The head of the Pharisees begins, Good, you're back. What did he say? Well, he said there was this runaway son who wasted a lot of money, but eventually came home to his father, who celebrated his return, and the father threw him a banquet in his honor. Yes, go on. What else did you hear? Well, he told the story about a vineyard owner whose tenants wouldn't pay their rent, and a man who woke his neighbor up in the middle of the night. Okay, but what did he teach? He talked about a farmer who sowed seeds and they were eaten by birds and choked by the weeds, but one seed remained and prospered. This is useless, he said. We wanted you to record what he taught. Well, did I mention 
He told about a woman that lost one of her 10 coins and spent the rest of the day cleaning her house, looking for it. And when she found it, she threw, she threw a party. This is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense at all. Well, sirs, there was one story that started me thinking. Yes, go on. Well, there was this rich man who had everything. Wealth, property, servants, fine food, fine clothing. Kind of like you. Then there was a poor man named Lazarus who had nothing in this life, but it was all reversed after they died. The rich man became poor, but this poor man became rich, not in wealth, but in his new life forever. To tell you the truth, sirs, I don't think I want to be a Pharisee after all. At this, they began to plot on how to get rid of this troublemaker once and for all. There was life-changing truth in Jesus' stories for those who wanted to hear the truth, but those who only wanted to catch him on some theological technicality walked away scratching their heads in anger. Truth is like that. It finds its way to open the hearts of those who are seeking and is rejected by those who are looking to support their own selfishness and pride. So with this in mind, in order to get what's going on here, we're going to go back to chapter 16, but we're going to begin in verse 14. Excuse me, verse 9. 16, 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one little, one, yeah, one little tittle of the law to fail. So you already have the idea. Look at Luke's description here when he says the Pharisees were lovers of money. He says the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard these things. They mocked and ridiculed him. They didn't like what he was saying, obviously. As we focus our attention on these verses this morning, we'll see that the Lord essentially gives us a three-part separation. We'll be looking at three main headings, and they're there on your outline First, we will see the, their disparity in life. Secondly, we will see their disparity in death. And finally, 
we will see their disparity in eternity. Well, let's first look at their disparity in life. We find the contrast here in verses 19 and 21. Now there was a certain rich man who was, and I'm reading from the Amplified Version, habitually dressed in expensive purple and fine linen, and celebrated and lived joyously in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at the gate, covered with sores. He eagerly longed to eat the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And besides, even the dogs were coming to lick his sores. You see the difference and the contrast in these two, right? Just how rich was this rich man? Well, he typically wore purple and fine linen, both of which were very expensive kinds of cloth and color. It states that he typically or habitually wore extravagant clothing. And because of the Greek uh, verb here, it shows that he did it as a daily routine. It was ongoing. He customarily, customarily clothed himself in purple and fine linen. Purple dye was quite rare and very costly to manufacture. It also meant a sign or a color of royalty or upper class. Only the very wealthy could afford such a color for their clothing. And there would be no mistaking that this man had money. Fine linen. To wear such clothing was a statement as as well. It would be worn as a status symbol of importance. To make this type of linen material, it was soaked in special clay pots over an extended period of time so that it would become brilliant and white. In other words, these clothes were not his best that he wore on special occasions, like we do on Sundays, right? But rather, they were his typical apparel. He was so rich that he could dress this way every day if he wanted, and he did. A fact which seems to be verified, but what else Jesus is going to say about him. We are told that he fared sumptuously or extravagantly every day. The New American Standard says, joyously living in splendor every day. The ESV translated, who feasted sumptuously every day. Every day was like a party for this man because he could afford it. He could celebrate lavishly every day. He could afford the best food, the best chefs, and all the trimmings that go along with it. Another translation puts it this way. He celebrated with display and flamboyance. He was showing off. He was making sure that the world would see his splendor. Not that different than what we see today, is it? We're overexposed to the multitudes of people that are called famous, whether they're actors, leaders, presidents of billion dollar companies, political and social elites, athletes, even teams, and various types of celebrities. It's a pedestal that we put these people on that we've created. We give them that representation. It's a form of worship, to be quite frank. We like to appeal to what they have to say rather than what God has to say. We listen to their truth rather than God's truth. We substitute their 
background, their foundation for what God has already given us because it's culturally relevant. Well, let's look at the other man, the rich man we looked at. Now Jesus is contrasting this because now he goes into the beggar. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Did you know that this is the only time Jesus names a name in any of his parables? The only one. And Lazarus, it fits because it means God has helped. Probably the reason why Jesus gave him this name. And this poor man was full of sores. He was laid at the rich man's gate. He was desiring to be fed with even the crumbs which fell from the table. And without, that's not bad enough, dogs came and licked his sores. Here we are given five realities about this man named Lazarus. First, we're told he was a beggar, a street person, homeless and destitute. He was so poor that he had to beg in order to survive. Apparently, he was unable to work or support himself in any way. And we will see why as we look at the rest of the description given here. We are told that he was full of sores. He was covered with ulcerated boils. Whatever sickness he had, it certainly wasn't pleasant. This man must have been miserable continuously. And such a condition would only have rendered him unclean so that most people would have avoided him. We are also told that he was laid at the rich man's gate. Now, it sounds kind of mundane, but this word laid really means that he was dropped off, put off. Basically, he was dumped. Apparently, this man could not walk on his own and had to be carried or laid at the rich man's gate, indicating that he was crippled or couldn't move in some way. The reason for being placed at the gate would have been obvious. Since the rich man was so incredibly wealthy, there would have been hope that as he passed by, he would have given alms to Lazarus. And you know that he passed by at least twice a day, once going and once coming back. But nothing. We are also told that he was desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Now, as he lay there at the gate, obviously he wasn't welcomed beyond then. But this wealthy man passed day by day. Lazarus is so hungry, all he could dream about were the scraps that fell from the table. Now, I don't know if you know, but back in the culture, when they were eating, they didn't have utensils like we do. They used their fingers. And they had different olive oils and things and herbs and whatever, and they would pick and whatever, and their hands would get kind of oily. Well, they'd take a piece of bread and they'd wrap it in their hand and they'd throw it under the table. Or they'd wipe their mouth and they'd throw it under the table. Those are the crumbs that poor Lazarus was just longing for. Anything. And then finally, the dogs would lick his sores. Now we think of dogs as pets. Many of us have pets, cats, whatever. These are not those type of dogs in those days. These were wild dogs. These went from trash heap to trash heap looking for food. They would attack you. Fortunately, God spared Lazarus and all they did was lick his wounds. But being that he was just sitting there, laying there, they could have attacked him. They, They could have really caused him deep pain. But God protected him. 
What we have here is a picture of a poor, hurting, lonely, sick man. A man who apparently received no help at all from this rich man, even though he was laid at the gate regularly. What a vivid contrast Jesus is showing us between the two earthly existence of these two men. But that's not the end. Now we see that Jesus will contrast their existence after their death. That brings us to point number two, the disparity in death. We find the contrast here in verses 22 and 23. But the order is reversed now because of this reversal of their respective situations. Now it happened that the poor man, Lazarus, died and his spirit was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. That's it. Now you have to assume that the rich man had enough money to have a funeral service. With all the pomp and circumstance, I'm sure he had it written out in his will. Something happens to me, I want a big party. That's what he was used to. But poor Lazarus, he just died. No funeral, no nothing. His body was probably placed in the heap in the trash heap outside the city. But it says that the angels carried him. While Lazarus had been carried and dumped in front of the rich man's gate when he was alive, left out in public for all to see, only to dream of the scraps from the table, now we are told that after he died, the angels carried him into Abraham's bosom. This is a reference to his being where Abraham is and being close to him which would be a place of honor and safety. If you remember the picture of the Feast of the Last Supper, we are told about when John was on Jesus' side, laying close to his chest. That's the idea of being that close. They would all be reclining on their left side, leaning, and Lazarus was right there leaning on Abraham. The situation was similar as I said, to the upper room in the Last Supper in John 13. Then we have the rich man. He also died and was buried. And in Hades, which is the realm of the dead, he was being in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus at his side resting on his chest. Notice again the vivid contrast between these two men, except that in the afterlife, there is a great reversal. Now Lazarus is celebrating rather than the rich man. And while Lazarus had been tormented by his illness and his poverty and his hunger, now the rich man is being tormented by the fires of Hades. The rich man is also said to be far off from where Abraham and Lazarus were, although not so far that they could not see each other somehow. But seeing them there, we'll notice that the rich man cries out to Abraham. And this leads to our next point, and that's the disparity in eternity. This is the final contrast Jesus is drawing here. This is, all this is leading up to where I wanted to go. One description of hell is talked about as a conscious torment. A believer who dies is immediately in the conscious fellowship and joys of heaven, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, absent from the body is present with the Lord. The damned are immediately in the conscious experience of pain, torment, torture, separation. 
The rich man and Lazarus are where they are and experiencing what they are because of their faith and trust in opposite truths. This is one of the major points of the story. This is how it really is between the two eternities. This would be a total contradiction and an assault on the religiosity and piety of the Pharisees he was talking to. I don't know how many of you have read Matthew chapter 23, the very chapter that contains the seven woes. And and Jesus is really warning the Pharisees at the time. He starts off by warning them, then he goes into the seven woes, telling them this is what's going to happen. So in context, again, I talked about Jesus' compassion. This is a story of warning. This is a story of you better get your mind right on this side of heaven because you won't have a second chance after. But now we get to the crux of the matter, the conversation. It's a two-way conversation between Abraham and the rich man. There are two requests made by Abraham, or made to Abraham by the rich man. There are two responses by Abraham. There's one final objection and then one final, uh, one final response to that objection. And I'll just read it here starting in verse 24. You can follow with me. Chapter 16, verse 24 and to the end. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in severe agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, all the comforts and delights, and Lazarus likewise bad things, all the discomforts and distresses. But now he is comforted here in paradise while you are in severe agony. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to come over from here to you will not be able to. And none may cross over from there to us. So the rich man said, Then, Father Abraham, I beg you, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that they may solemnly warn them and witness to them, so that they too will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have the scriptures given by Moses and the writings of the prophets. Let them listen to them. He replied, No, Father Abraham. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. They will change their old way of thinking and seek God and his righteousness. Final answer. And he said to him, If they do not listen to the messages of Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if somebody rises from the dead. Wow. That's what got me. That one verse is what's given me the foundation for this. You have Moses and the prophets. And even if somebody comes back from the dead, you're not going to believe. Amazing to me because Jesus is talking about this. And within weeks or so, he's going to be the one rising from the dead. And they're still not going to believe. It's a precursor. 
First, we have the rich man's first request. He said, he cried out, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that I may dip his finger in the water, cool my tongue, because I am in severe agony. Well, let's look at some unchanged attitudes that this rich man had. First, notice that the rich man now wants to be shown mercy. He never showed Lazarus any mercy when he had the chance, and he had many. Still, he was only thinking of himself and has no concern for the welfare of Lazarus. Secondly, the rich man's arrogance has not been altered by his situation. He still sees Lazarus as being inferior to himself when he requests that Abraham send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger. And thirdly, the rich man is said to be tormented in this flame. A horrible and painful fate he could not have possibly imagined or expected as a Pharisee. Often we are tempted to think that when people die and end up in a place of torment, they will somehow finally be sorry for what they have done. And so we might be tempted to think that it doesn't seem fair that they should continue to suffer so horribly. But this parable indicates that those who are hard-hearted in this life will only continue to be so in the afterlife. They will most certainly continue to deserve the punishment they receive. After all, they won't cease to be sinners just because they're being tormented. But the fact still remains what the rich man did while he was alive. His lack of compassion, his pride of life, the arrogant faith in himself, his power, his prestige, his wealth. But most importantly, his rejection of the truth, Moses and the prophets, God's word. This will warrant all the sufferings he experiences after his death. And Abraham's going to make that clear. Here's his response. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, all the comforts and delights, and Lazarus likewise the bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony there. And besides all this, between us and the people, there's this great chasm, this abyss. It's fixed so that those who want to come over from here to you will not be able to, and none may cross over from there to us. Abraham is making this clear. He's reminding this man that it is his own fault. And when he says that the rich man in your lifetime, you received your good things, and likewise evil things Lazarus received, he's implying that it didn't have to be that way. The rich man could have helped Lazarus, but willingly chose to ignore God's truth. And so, he is unable to receive help from Lazarus now. Here I think that the rich man is intended to stand for the one who chose to serve mammon in his life rather than to serve God, as I mentioned before. He could have loved God rather than money and made friends in his earthly life by means of unrighteous mammon. And now Lazarus might have been among those who would have received him into everlasting life. But the glorification of self rather than God and his lack of mercy towards others, his ignorance in ignoring God's word has earned him what he deserves, a terrible punishment everlasting. But notice also that Lazarus must have, made, or must have been among the righteous who served God. He must have been a believer 
who trusted in God despite his terrible circumstances. And now he receives a reward far greater than the rich man could ever have dreamed of. Verse 26 says, And besides all this, between us and you there is this great chasm. There is no crossing over. There is no saying, wait a minute, I made a mistake. Wait a second, I changed my mind. Wait, I do believe. By that time, it's too late. That chasm cannot be crossed. To make that point, Abraham basically says to the rich man, not only are you getting what you deserve, but we couldn't help you even if we wanted to. Because once your earthly life is over, your fate is fixed for all eternity. Are you hearing that? This is the point that Jesus is making. There are no second chances after this life has been wasted on temporary pleasures. Or as the book of Hebrew puts it, it is appointed for man to die once, but after that, the judgment. We need then to take advantage of the opportunity that God gives us now, today, this morning. And this means, as we shall see further on, that we need to hear what God has to say to us now through his word and make that decision before we part this earthly life. We see the rich man's second request. So the rich man said, Then, Father Abraham... I beg you to send Lazarus to my house, for I have five brothers in order that he may solemnly warn them and witness to them so that they too will not come to this place of torment. Abraham's second response. But Abraham said, they have the scriptures given by Moses and the writings of the prophets. Let them listen to them. Why would the rich man request that? Because not only did the rich man reject Moses and the prophets, he knew that his brothers also rejected it. They weren't believing it either. They came from the same household. He's pleading now. Wait, there's got to be another way. And we'll get to that. Here Abraham makes it clear that the rich man did have a warning. He had the word of God. And his brothers also had this same word. And Abraham clearly believes that this word is sufficient. So here we can discern the reason Lazarus was with Abraham instead of with the rich man in torment because Lazarus believed the word. It was because that he had heeded God's word. For Lazarus must have heard or read Moses and the prophets and believed, whereas the rich man clearly heard the word. He may have even read it and studied it as a Pharisee, but he never believed it, he never trusted it, and never applied it to his own life. How many of us read the word, heard the word, even studied the word, can quote verse and chapter and never apply it to our lives? However, the rich man isn't done defending himself. Here's his final objection and Abraham's final response. We see the rich man's final and futile objection to what Abraham has said. He, the rich man, replied, No, Father Abraham, 
But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. They will change their own ways of thinking and seek God in his righteousness. And Abraham said to him, If they did not listen to the message of Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if somebody rises from the dead. Wow. You would think that if somebody you knew rose from the dead, you would believe. But guess what? It's hard to believe that this so-called holy man was so arrogant that he's arguing with Abraham. Abraham was the greatest forefather, the greatest example of genuine faith and spirituality for the Jews. And this rich man is arguing with him. He's actually telling Abraham that he's wrong, telling him and defying him, the very father of the faith. He thinks that God's word is not sufficient enough. He knows it won't be sufficient enough for his brothers. That's why he's pleading. What they needed was some really big miracle, some over-the-top experience, some type of supernatural example like someone returning for the dead to warn them. They needed to see a resurrection. That'll do the trick, they thought, or he thought, That will do what he should have done. Surely if they see that, they will repent. However, this man is completely wrong in his assumptions, as Abraham points out. If they did not listen to the messages of Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Abraham, in no uncertain terms, dismisses the notion that so many unbelieving people seem to have today. Namely, that if they could only see a great miracle of some kind, they'll believe. But that's not true. Those who refuse to believe the word of God will not believe even if somebody is raised from the dead. As they will soon be witness to on that third day after the crucifixion. The generation of hard-hearted and unbelieving Israelites who perished in the wilderness and were not allowed into the promised land are examples of this very truth. They had witnessed all the plagues of Egypt. They had experienced the first Passover when all the firstborn males two years and under were killed except their own. They watched with wonder the parting of the Red Sea. They walked through the Red Sea. They turned around and they watched the Red Sea close over Pharaoh's army. They heard God's voice from Mount Sinai. They ate manna from heaven. They drank water from a rock. But still, they didn't believe. They were exposed to more miracles in their lives than perhaps any other generation. But it did them no good. Did them no good. Another interesting note is in the book of John where we have the actual temporary resurrection of another man named Lazarus, chapter 12. We see the response of the religious leaders then because it was a threat to their power, their control. If they acknowledged what they witnessed, they may have to admit that this humble man from Galilee might in fact be the true Messiah. Who else could raise somebody from the dead? So what did they do? They plotted to get rid of him. They had to get rid of the evidence. I'm talking about Lazarus. They wanted to kill Lazarus. 
Because without him, there's no proof. Hebrews 4, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And on one other occasion, Jesus in Matthew 12 says, An evil and adulterous generation seek after signs. Other places, Paul indicates that the Jews sought after signs because they thought it was foolishness to think God's word would really make any change. It's not that much different today, is it? We have been given... God's word in our hands. Tr- many translations. Many of us probably have more than five Bibles in our houses. There are people here this morning that have read through God's word, but God's word hasn't gone through them. I'm here to encourage you, but also to warn you, as Jesus is doing this parable. John chapter 3, verse 18. Whoever believes and has decided to trust in him as personal Savior and Lord is not judged. For this one, there is no judge, no rejection, no condemnation. But the one who does not believe and has decided to reject him as personal Savior and Lord is judged already. That one has been convicted and sentenced because he has not believed and trusted in the name the one and only begotten Son of God, the one who is truly unique, the one of his kind, the one and only one who can save. Hebrews 10, verses 27 through 31. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant? They sanctified them. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wow. So if you are among those who secretly think that if only God would do some great thing in your life or somebody else's life and you would believe... I'm going to tell you that that's pretty far-fetched. If you will not believe his word, then you, will, you surely won't believe in miracles or emotional experiences. We know this one, Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power. God's word is the power unto salvation. His word. And believe you must, because as this parable makes it clear, we only get the opportunity in this life to believe. 
And if we don't believe in this life, we can only expect an irrevocable and eternal judgment in the next. The gospel, the good news, is the only proof that is needed. Did Jesus and his disciples perform miracles? Yes. Why? First of all, to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. And also to establish the early church with authority. And to continuously and consistently point to the word, who is who? Christ incarnate. There is no holding place. There is no in-between location for any type of pardon or any other place to lessen the inevitable final judgment of non-belief. The unbeliever's death instantly closes the door to heaven and opens it to eternal condemnation. As Father Abraham answered, they had Moses and the prophets, and we have so much more. There will be no excuses that will be valid enough to keep us from that rich man's fate. We all have an appointment with our Creator. Whether we're ready for it or not depends on what you do with Jesus now. The question is, are you ready for the final appointment? Some of us are closer than others. We don't know the time or day, but he does. Have you believed in his gospel, in his word? Have you humbled yourself to the point of admitting and acknowledging that you're a sinner? Have you trusted in Christ as redeemer, Lord and savior? The question is, there are no second chances. Whether you agree with what I'm saying or not is irrelevant. (laughs) You've got to agree or disagree with God's word. That's relevant. And if you don't accept that, I pray for you. Yeah, it may sound crazy that I don't understand. This is the only way. There's got to be more ways. Well, even if somebody raises from the dead or performs a miracle, it's not going to change. God's word is the only thing that can change somebody's heart. When you're talking to somebody, share that word. I pray that he may grant you faith and repentance today. This may be your last opportunity to trust in him before that appointment. Guess what? God has already determined that appointment. As Hebrews 9, 7 said, Just as it is appointed and destined for all mankind to die once. After that comes judgment. There is no reincarnation. There isn't coming back and trying it again as we read in that silly story. It's once. And when you die, you're either going to be judged or not. It all depends on what you do with Jesus. Please heed these words this morning. Not from me, but from his word. There are no second chances. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. As clear as it can be, there's there's no getting around it, Lord. You've made it extremely clear that there is no second chances. People are going to walk out of this place today 
than be wondering about tomorrow. Hey, I still have time. Lord, only you know if that's true. I pray, God, that if these words that they've heard from your word have quickened their heart, oh God, I pray that this morning, this would be the day. This would be the day that they call out to you. Father, I need to humble myself. Yeah, I'm not a very good person. No, guess what? You're a sinner. You need, you need to acknowledge that. Because what you're doing is you're walking in front of a holy God. God demands perfection, and none of us here in this room are perfect. So, Lord, help those who are unable to humble themselves. Call out to you. Look to you, Father. And understand that they have a chance now. But when that final appointment comes, that'll be the end. So thank you, Lord, for your grace, your mercy. Thank you for these words of compassion, these words of warning, these words of love. Because your word says you, you hope that none should perish. And I pray that this morning, Lord, that there be those here who would heed those words. In Jesus' name, amen.